0: Otherwise, if you'll be, go to uh, Ephesians, last week we spent time looking at the city of Ephesus, uh, hopefully to provide some context for what Paul writes in this letter called Ephesians. And then this morning also is going to be providing context for when we actually drill down deeper after this morning. Uh, last week then is more of an overview. This week really is more of a bird's eye view and then starting next week, we'll, we'll look more specifically at the particulars, though I don't intend on being anywhere near as uh, thorough as D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who spent years in Ephesians and probably, who knows, maybe an entire year in the f- first chapter of Ephesians. I'm not sure. He was, he was very slow and meticulous. And in his case, that was a good thing. So, a r- little bit of review from last week about the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is found in modern-day Turkey. It's, it's, an, it's not a city any longer. Uh, it, it was one of the five largest cities in the entire Roman Empire in Paul's day, but uh, now it really is only ruins. But it's in modern-day Turkey. Across the Aegean Sea would be Greece, Athens, uh, across the sea. So if he, Ephesus is an unusual city in Scripture in that in the New Testament there are more snapshots into what Ephesus is like the church at Ephesus there are more snapshots given that than any other new testament city other than Jerusalem i think you could arguably you could make you could argue for Jerusalem having the most detail in the new testament so what we saw last week if i were to reduce it very simply in i will say ad 52 paul makes a very brief stop at Ephesus on his second journey. He doesn't spend a lot of time there. It's probably days, maybe a week, maybe a couple weeks. He leaves Priscilla and Aquila there, and he moves on. He's, he's going back to the home church. So it's a very brief stop, but he says, if the Lord wills, I'm going to revisit you, which is actually what happens, I'm going to say, from AD 54 to 56. Paul's third missionary journey, he spends two and a half, three years at Ephesus. Paul spends, so far as I know, <clears throat> more time in, at the church in Ephesus than any other church. He spent a year and a half at Corinth, and he, was, he found uh, his relationship with those people was very near and very dear. He spent twice as long at Ephesus. Paul spent a lot of time there. In AD 57 and 58, after spending uh, two and a half, three years there, he went on to some other cities on that journey. And then he's retracing his steps to go back to Jerusalem. On his way back to Jerusalem, he calls for the elders of Ephesus to meet with him. He has such an intimate relationship with those elders, with this church. The relationships, on some level, they have to be deeper than anywhere else simply because of the time he spent. And so he calls for the elders of the church to meet with him. And in Acts chapter 20, you have this very tender uh, exchange between Paul and the elders of the Ephesian church. And as he's leaving, there's weeping and embracing, especially the the elders at Ephesus are sorry to hear Paul say, you'll never see me again. And so it's a very tearful departure. Then in AD 60 or 61, maybe AD 62, some commentators argue for 62, Paul writes a letter that is delivered to the Ephesian church. That's where we're at. So the important thing for you to know right now is we go through the letter uh, to the Ephesians. All that has already taken place. Paul's already built this huge relationship with the church at Ephesus. But I'm careful into what I wrote. It says Paul writes a letter that is delivered to the Ephesian church. It's not really a letter that's explicitly to the Ephesians. I think it starts with the Ephesian church, but it's not meant to stop there. It seems likely to me that the, writ, the letter is meant to be circular. What is lacking in the book of what we call the letter to the Ephesians, what is lacking or any kind of reference to situational circumstances that Paul undoubtedly would have encountered there in three years. Paul doesn't go through a list of names and a list of greetings. Because that would not mean anything to, to other churches and other locations that read this letter. So it's not a, it doesn't seem very personal. It seems more, um, I'm not sure of the word, I want to say prof- professorial but i'm not sure that's a word it sounds like it sounds like more of just a teaching objective letter without any of the subjective feelings and emotions this letter that starts with the church at ephesus but is meant to move on from there i've uh, also told you that the oldest greek manuscripts in existence do not have the words to ephesus in the opening verse Uh, that seems to have been added later So let's start with a very simple outline of the book Book of Ephesians or the letter to the Ephesians. I'm going to have to call it that simply because that's easiest. This is from John Stott. John Stott was was an Anglican uh, pastor, theologian, scholar. He passed away in 2011. Uh, John Stott has written a lot of good things you would benefit from if you were to find a book by John Stott. I like John Stott's outline partly because it's simple, because... I've got lots of books that have very lit, big, very detailed outlines and I don't want to go, I don't want to spend slide after slide showing you all the detail of how Ephesians breaks down. I want to keep it simple. I also like that John Stott, in, in the way he outlines the book, seems to emphasize the community aspect of the letter. In other words, it's not written to a person, it's written to a community of believers, And there's a little bit of a difference there. A community of believers is made up of people. But when an outline, when I read an outline and it talks about me, 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 uh, I think it's missing part of what's important in the letter. It's written to the group. And what we are is a group. So the outline looks like this. In chapter 1 and verse 3 through chapter 2 and verse 10, the emphasis is on the new life which God gives us in Christ. It's an emphasis on new life. Then, in chapter 2, verse 11, through the end of chapter 3, the emphasis is on a new society which God has created through Christ. You start with new life. It creates a new society. Then, uh, starting in chapter 4 and continuing through chapter 5 and verse 21, there are new standards which God expects of His new society. And these new standards have to do with unity, purity, holiness, love. But this new community is to, to exhibit certain standards that don't look like the rest of the world. In fact, they're dramatically different from the rest of the world. And then in chapter 5, verse I guess I'm not sure if that's right or if I miss him off a verse. May, any rate, through the end of chapter 6, you've got new relationships into which God has brought us. So you've got new life, new society, new standards, and new relationships. That's a very simple outline of Ephesians. I think he does an admirable job there. I would add to that that what we find God doing is expressed in creation language. You know, the Bible begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so all this newness is, is, is uh, conveyed in creative terms. I've got three references on there. I'll have you look at those. Look at chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. So this corresponds to the new life which God gives in Christ. Familiar verses, chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's a new creation, it's new life. Then, in the second category of a new society, if you'll look at the very next verse, chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time... New life is created by God. This new society is created by God. And then the third reference, chapter 4, verses 17 to 24, regarding the new standards, it looks like this. Chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say in testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds... And is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. As Paul is constructing this letter, what he wants to emphasize is God is at work creating, creating new life, a new society, new standards. This is a creative act of God, everything that's written in this letter. Let's build upon this. The letter starts with a simple introduction, which we really haven't dealt with yet, so let's start there. Paul, apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To the saints who are, and in the earliest manuscripts there's just a blank, so you could fill that in, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ. He starts off calling himself an apostle. An apostle in Scripture is a word that means one sent, one sent forth. It's a messenger, and you are an authorized representative of the one who sent you. In Paul's case, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's a representative of Christ Jesus, fully authorized to speak for Christ Jesus, who is ascended to the right hand of the Father. The same word is used in scripture of certain messengers who are sent forth by churches. In that case, they're representatives of the church. They speak for the church. We might liken it to when a church commissions a missionary and they are sent forth. They're apostles. They're sent forth by the church. Not an apostle in the sense that Paul is. Paul was not sent by a church. He was not sent by the other apostles. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. This was not something he aspired to be. It's not a vocation he pursued. By the will of God, Paul was sent forth as an apostle, as a spokesperson for the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can't be an apostle unless you're a witness of the resurrection, which Paul was. You can't be an apostle unless you've been taught by the Lord Jesus Christ, which Paul was. But not in the ordinary sense. Because Paul did not spend three plus years walking around with Jesus in the land of Nazareth. But he was caught up in a, in a vision in which Paul of which Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians. And he was taught and shown things by Christ in a way that the other apostles did not receive. So that's how it starts off. The letter comes with authority because he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. It's written to the saints like most of the Bible, like most of the New Testament, it's not written to the world at large. The Bible really isn't a book for the world at large. It doesn't mean that people in the world at large cannot get something out of it. It's not for them. It is for them, but it's not to them. Ephesians isn't written for the world. It's written to Christians, to saints. And I told you last week, and I emphasized it, That Paul never names any one individual a saint, but he commonly speaks of saints in the plural. Because whatever Christ intends for us to be as believers, it only happens as we're together. You cannot be fashioned and made in the image of Christ all by yourself, all on your own. The instructions for this new society and this new way of living, it happens within a community of believers. And you might think, but it's so much harder then. And you would be right. Because you really don't need a lot of Christian grace and fruit when you're all by yourself. But when you're interacting with other people, it requires patience and understanding and gentleness and kindness and love. Because we've discovered at our church, people are a lot different than cows. It's even on our quilt, hanging up in the in the stairwell out there, which is a great story, and unfortunately, most people don't know it. Uh, so I'll give it to you real quick. When, we, when Cindy and I were with Rural Home Missionary Association, there was a, a couple that was a, a missionary couple that had come on board, and they used to be dairy farmers. And uh, they were brought up uh, at the annual conference that they had, uh, Dave and Nancy Foote they were brought up to talk about their experience as missionaries, and they said, "You know what? when we were dairy farmers we had to we had to milk those cows every day for however many years thirty years i mean our our schedule never changed it it never varied. it was always the same we've discovered in ministry people are a lot different than cows <laughs> and that kind of stuck with me so The letter is from Paul the Apostle, it's two believers, two saints, and then he says a standard greeting for Paul in the New Testament, I think it would also be a standard greeting in general, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And at this point, I would say, is that flippant? Is that just a little too easy that Paul just throws out this grace and peace, not knowing individual circumstances within the church? Paul's not writing to one specific church. He's writing to to churches all over the area. He's writing to our church. We can put our name in to the saints who were in Mount Zion or Macon County or Illinois. Grace and peace. How can he throw out this grace and peace not knowing that some people are probably dealing with some, some really difficult things and maybe have spent more time in tears been in praise in the last week how is it that paul can be so sure that this greeting is appropriate not knowing individual circumstances and not knowing how disappointed some people may be with their circumstances and the answer simply has to be that this greeting is not dependent on human abilities it's not dependent on human steadfastness human intentions human measurements He can offer grace and peace because it isn't dependent on me me simply being steadfast and claiming it and believing it. It's not dependent on me understanding things. It's not dependent on me achieving things. It's not dependent on my motivations, which at at any given moment are always conflicted and they're always uh, not entirely pure. But Paul still can offer can express this greeting of grace and peace to every believer, to all the God's saints. Because it looks past us. It looks beyond us. This grace and peace is found in God. Entirely on God, who does not waver and does not change. Not even uh, change that uh, you could detect in a shadow. And verses 3 to 14 outline the foundation for the initial greeting of grace and peace. Here's why Paul can say grace and peace is appropriate. I don't care what your circumstances, it's because of verses 3 to 14. Which if you have a study Bible, or if you've ever um, looked at Ephesians on your own, perhaps, it is one sentence in Greek. And one commentator I assume they're right, I don't know enough, but they say the, this is the longest sentence ever found in ancient Greek. There's no sentence ever written longer in ancient Greek than the sentence Paul writes beginning in verse 3 that ends in verse 14. Now, I, don't, I remember counting up how many sentences it got divided up in in the English Standard Version, and now I don't remember, I think it was seven. So that one sentence, I think, in the ESV was divided up into seven simply because who talks like that? How do you even understand a sentence that complicated? When I was uh, in in school, actually in middle school, we diagrammed lots of sentences. This would have been a disaster to try to diagram one sentence from verses 3 to 14. But let's start by looking at the big picture. So I want to read verses 3 to 14. Uh, So I I promise you we're not going to sufficiently dissect one entire sentence in, in one week, but let's at least get started and make some big observations. It reads like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. All one sentence in the Greek. Paul Paul recognizes even if we divide it up, what he wants you to know is all of this is connected together. And you don't want to dissect it. This is why there's got to be some value in trying to look at the big picture. Because he doesn't want us to dissect it part by part by part. He wants us to be uh, awed by the whole. Odd by the whole. So I've got kind of six general observations or six things that we want to look at the big picture of. And then starting next week, we'll divide it up uh, and look a little at at specifics and particulars a little closer. The the number one big picture idea from verses 3 to 14 is that this is a God-centric passage. This is a passage about God, not about me. This is a passage about God, not about humanity, and not about his creation. God is at the center of this passage. And in particular, it's God the Father's work that is especially in view in verses 3 to 6. It's kind of interesting. In the whole sentence, you've got the Trinity. You've got God the Father's work. You've got God the Son's work. And then you've got God the Holy Spirit's work at the end because they work together together. To bring this blessing. So, what is the blessing that is so God centric? It looks like this the big picture. He's blessed us, He chose us, He predestined us, He lavished grace upon us, He made known to us the mystery of His will, He set forth His purpose in Christ. He works all things according to the counsel of His own will. That's the blessing. That's that's why this has to be a God-centric verse. It's all about what God is doing. That's at the forefront. That's at the center. The second main thing that we should be impressed by is that God the Father accomplishes all his purposes in Christ and by the Holy Spirit. It's the Father's blessing. It originates... God the Father is the designer of all this that He's done, but He doesn't do any of it apart from Christ and the Spirit. So what we find in those verses, we find in Christ, or in Him referring to Christ, or I think the very first time it actually refers to the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 3, you find that reference 12 times. So in 12 verses... I don't know how you could possibly miss it. God the Father does not bless people apart from Christ. That's why there's only one name given under heaven by which we must be saved. There is no blessing of God apart from Christ. If people don't know who Christ is, if they don't know the Son of God, they need to hear because that's where the blessing is. All those blessings that were enumerated in those... uh, When we looked at God the Father aspect... All those blessings are found in Christ. None of those blessings are found apart from Christ. Twelve times you find in Christ, in Him. The Son's work is especially evident in verses 7 to 12. So if you look at verse 7, it's in Him, speaking of the Son, in Him, we have redemption through His blood. It wasn't the Father's blood that was shed on the cross, it was the Son's the forgiveness of sin, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Uh, What the Father accomplishes to bless His people, those who He has chosen, it is found in Christ and in no other. And then, the Spirit's work is especially evident in verses 13 to 14. So verse 13, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised holy spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory the holy spirit has a has a work in this plan of blessing this plan of forgiveness this plan of redemption all that the father purposes to do is found in him and by the holy spirit the third main impression that i want to take away from this and it's it's a small part of it but it's a it's a necessary part The blessing doesn't come apart from this aspect as well. So the third impression is this. God's eternal purpose to bless includes and requires a human response. Now, I don't use the word depends on a human response. Because then the ultimate difference between God's blessing or not is something found in what I do. It's not dependent on my response, but it requires my response. And it includes my response. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard, faith comes by hearing the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, there's got to be a hearing and there's got to be a believing. The blessing of God in Christ requires a response of hearing and believing. At this point, I want to uh, share a quote by Eugene Peterson, who... Uh, has a book kind of loosely on Ephesians. I think I referred to it last week, but I don't remember anymore. But he makes an observation that I think is worth breaking before I get to the next three points. He writes, the tone throughout this passage is adoring rather than calculating. So if on your own, you read verses 3 to, to 14, you read through those verses, and you come away with a a detached God who simply does what he wants because he can do it, and he's sovereign and nobody can stop him, you've missed the point. It's not a detached God, it's an adoring God, a loving God. In love he predestined us. So the motivation behind it is not just this cold, sterile calculation, it's an adoration that he has for those whom he's chosen. Let me move, I think, to the next three points. D, the question is, what specific blessings result from God's purposes? Uh, We've got this idea of all that God is doing uh, for his, his chosen. What are the blessings? If we were to enumerate them, if we were to list them out, what should I pick out? Are These are the blessings, or this constitutes the blessing of God. It looks like this. The blessing means we're holy and blameless before him. The blessing is that we are adopted as sons and that's no slight on on daughters it's no slight on mothers and women but the idea certainly in the roman world is that to get the most you could out of an adoption to receive the most benefits if you're adopted as a son you receive everything that could possibly be offered to you by your father because even in Old Testament times, it's, it's the firstborn son that received the largest share of the inheritance. So, ad, we're adopted as sons. The blessing is we have redemption. The forgiveness of our trespasses, which I think is significant, though I haven't studied out the particulars real well. It's not just forgiveness of sins, which is missing the mark. It's the forgiveness of trespasses. A trespass is, there's a sign that says, don't trespass, and I decide to do it. It's a more willful, intentional, I know God said not to do this, I'm doing it anyway. And part of this blessing is we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Not just that we don't measure up. But even those times in my life when I have deliberately chosen to walk away and disobey, I've got forgiveness. The blessing includes knowledge of the mystery of his will. The blessing includes obtaining an inheritance. And the blessing is we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. All of those are are particular aspects of this large blessing that the Father has determined to bestow. Point number five. These blessings extend from before creation and into eternity. From before creation and into eternity. We're chosen before the foundation of the world. Before God said, let there be light, God had made a choice to save. God had made a choice to bless. So that's... Before the foundation of the world. Now in him. We have redemption. Right now I have redemption. That's a present blessing. That's a present aspect of what God is determined to do. In him. We have obtained an inheritance. And then it stretches into all eternity. Because it's a plan for the fullness of time. Until we acquire the possession of our inheritance. Which is so interesting. Because. Here I read, I've obtained an inheritance. And then at the end it talks about, I think it's in, uh, it's in verse, uh, the very last verse, verse 14, until we acquire possession of that inheritance. It's what theologians call already, not yet. In one, ass, in one sense, we already have all that we could possibly ever hope for and dream of. But in another sense, it's not all complete yet. I've already obtained an inheritance. I'm already redeemed. I'm already forgiven. But I still struggle with sin. I still have wrong motivations. I still think the wrong thoughts. I still have a body of sin that is prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So even though I have got it all, I'm also a work in progress. So this plan of blessing stretches back from before Genesis 1.1 and it stretches into the future past what we could ever imagine in, under these, uh, in this age. The last big impression is all this to what end? Why has God done all of this? And the answer is given us three times. It's to the praise of His glorious grace. It's so that we might be to the praise of His glory and it's to the praise of his glory a third time, which is, the, which is how the, the verse ends in verse 14, or how the whole sentence ends in verse 14. The ultimate reason, the ultimate motivation behind what God does, it's not the redemption of sinners, it's to bring glory to himself. Ultimately, God's purpose in all that he does is that he is glorified, he's glorified in redeeming sinners. But I'm not the ultimate reason why God does what he does. Ultimately, it's God receives praise and glory for what he chooses and determines to do. God's glory is the answer as to why he does what he does. So, based upon this, let me summarize. The Life Application Bible Commentary says, if I were to summarize the entire Paul sentence, Paul could have just said this. (laughs) And we would have been not as good for it, but the commentary reads, we have these blessings because of God's choosing us, verse 4, Christ dying for us, verse 7, and the Holy Spirit sealing us in verse 13. That's if you want to reduce it all down, if you want to uh, condense it, that's the blessing. God's choice, Christ's death, the Holy Spirit sealing us. That's the blessing that Paul details in the long sentence. The commentary goes on to say, Very few issues cause more confusion and even arguments among Christians than the issues of election and predestination. It is very difficult to simultaneously embrace God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Election was not a theological concept dreamed up by Paul. It appears throughout Scripture. Even though we may not be able to completely comprehend how these two truths coexist, we can say this. And then the commentary list two very simple categories. Uh, I figured I'd just go with what they put in their book rather than me trying to reinvent it. I think I could be said a little bit better, but the essence would look like this. You've got election and human responsibility. Under election, the commentary says, it comes from the heart of God, not the mind of people. It should be an incentive to please God, not to ignore him. And election means we should; it should give birth to gratitude, not complacency. At the same time, regarding human responsibility, it requires that we actively confess Christ as Lord. It focuses on living according to God's plan. And it requires that we share the gospel with everyone. There is certainly human responsibility in response or as a consequence of God's election. And you've got, at any given point... In my life, in the course of my life, there have been times I've been uncomfortable with what the Bible says about election and predestination. At other times in the course of my life, I've been uncomfortable with what the Bible says about human responsibility. Because it's, it, there are times they seem at odds with one another. I think Charles Spurgeon, if I were to recommend what, any one individual that seemed to, to so beautifully speak of both truths at the same time, and oftentimes in the same sermon, it would be Charles Spurgeon, who wholly embraced the sovereign electing love of God in Christ and wholly preached that humans must respond to to the gospel as it's proclaimed. So Charles Spurgeon would be a good example. I realize that uh, because uh, this is difficult for most people at some point or another, I'm not going to solve and resolve all of this in such a neat night. neat, nice way that the controversy is going to end at our church. And we will go down in church history as the church that settled the matter, and we are all very comfortable with how the Bible presents some aspect of human responsibility and some act of God's sovereign electing love. It doesn't mean that I don't have very sharp and deep convictions about my own understanding of it. Uh, At the end of the day, what is required of us as a church and as you as an individual, is to read God's Word in context. I remember going back a long time, 35 or so years ago, an individual... Well, actually, I've got lots of stories. I mean, I remember when I was teaching at the Free Methodist Church uh, back in the mid-1980s, maybe the last half of the 1980s, I taught a Bible study at the Free Methodist Church in Lincoln, Illinois, And I remember, I don't remember what text of scripture we were, I was working through, but I remember an older lady coming because it was an older, small church, and a lady came up to me and she said, I just want you to know, I don't believe in predestination. And I'm like, well, you know it's in the Bible. Like, you know, I mean, how you understand it may differ for me, but don't say you don't believe in it when it's found in the Bible. I mean, the word is there, it has to mean something, like, you can't discount it just because you're uncomfortable with it. It's got to mean something. Um, so, at any rate, the other thing I was going to say is uh, I lost it. Um, we've got to read God's word in context. That's. Oh, I had a friend that uh, struggled, especially with the aspect of uh, God's sovereignty and election. And I just said, just read the Bible. Just keep reading the Bible. Just keep reading the Bible. Because I grew up in church, I don't really remember my Lutheran years, the actual Bible teaching part. But I remember in my Baptist church, they just didn't teach verse by verse. They taught, this week you were in Romans, next week you were in John, the third week you were in Timothy, that week after that you were in Philippians, then you were in Colossians. And the problem with that is, you're kind of stack. you're deciding how the cards are dealt. And I've I've definitely discovered, and this goes back to my... Uh, upbringing, my mentor, Marv Wiseman, I discovered there's a world of difference when you start reading and studying and learning the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Because you wind up having to deal with things that make you uncomfortable. If you've never read the Bible, if you're like, I read the Bible and I'm comfortable with it, I'm not sure you're reading it. Because the Bible will make you uncomfortable. uh, Because it reveals myself for who I am and it's not pretty and it reveals God for who he is and it's much bigger than I possibly imagined. So let's build on this. John Piper uh, preached a sermon called Pastoral Thoughts on the Doctrine of Election. Uh, John Piper's up at, um, the t- well, at Joe and Sue, your daughter Margaret, started off at uh, Bethlehem Baptist up in Minneapolis or St. Paul had several campuses, I think. He's like Pastor Emeritus now, and he's kind of retired. But he's a, a, phenom- he's a prolific author uh, and a fascinating individual. He's such an easy person to listen to, so I would highly recommend him as well. But on these pastoral thoughts on the doctrine of election, I'm going to pick out three points that he makes out of this larger sermon that I think will suit us well. Point number one, he says, Not all things are good for us to know. And so God has not revealed them to us. And there are some things that are good for us to know, even when we can't explain them fully. And by that, he's including the doctrine of election. And what that means, so far as humans must respond, it requires a response from humans. Not dependent on, but it requires a response to the gospel. So God saw fit to reveal words like election and predestination and chosen. He saw fit to reveal it. It must be for a good reason. Does that mean I can fully understand it and explain it in a way that's going to satisfy everybody, including my own heart at times? No. But that's okay. The fact that God revealed what he did gives me reason to affirm the parts that I can understand to the best of my ability. A reference that he uses, which is a famous one, is Deuteronomy twenty-nine, twenty-nine, which says the secret things belong to the Lord. But that which he's revealed, he's revealed to us and our children that we would obey him. Whatever God has chosen to reveal in all of his word is so that we will be more obedient than what we were before we knew those things. <clears throat> That's point number one. Point number two from John Piper. The doctrine of election has a strong tendency to make a church rigorous about the truth and about the scriptures. And so keep it from drifting into doctrinal indifference and conformity to culture. What he means by that is this, what he goes on to explain. He would say it is so easy for any given church to reflect the values of their culture. We are a Western culture. And in Western culture, it... It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily prove that we all think the same way or we all have the same starting point. But it probably is more often true than not that in our Western mindset, we are very independent and singular minded. And I don't need other people to agree with me or disagree with me. I just know what I think. I'm an American. And we do things our own way. Everybody gets to decide for themselves everything, especially these days. And nobody's going to tell me what I am or what I am not or what I can do or what I can't do. We don't believe in those standards in Western culture. And the doctrine of election is so anti-culture that it forces you to look at Scripture to see what Scripture actually says. So John Piper believes it's a good doctrine in the sense that it drives people to Scripture rather than culture. What does God say about this? What does God say about His grace? Rather than what does our culture say about who goes to heaven? Our culture says what R.C. Sproul called was justification by death. In our culture, when you die, you go to heaven. It doesn't make any difference what kind of life you lived. You died. died. Dead people go to heaven. And that's the way every obituary reads. That's the way most funerals are preached. Somehow apart from Christ, just because we die, we're qualified. But I can assure you that's not what Scripture teaches. His third point, the last point is the most interesting of all. He says the doctrine of election is one of the best ways to test whether we have reversed roles with God. The doctrine of election is one of the best ways to test whether we have reversed roles with God. Because we like to think, I like to think I'm at the center of things. And the doctrine of election hum, uh, humbles me and elevates God. Uh, there's, he gives two examples. I know I've got one on the board. No, I've got one of his two examples on the board. Job would be a, an example. Job thought he could go toe-to-toe with God. And Job, you've got, in the book of Job, we know the story about his suffering. And for the longest time, in those middle chapters, Job is like, if only I could stand before God. I would argue my case. I would prove I'm righteous. I would prove I didn't deserve any of this. He's just arguing against God who seems distant and absent. And then finally God shows up. And Job ends, the book of Job ends with these words. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? And Job responds, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, the Lord said, listen now and I will speak. When I question you, you will inform me. Job says, I had heard about, I had heard rumors about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I take back my words and repent in dust and ashes. It's so easy for me to think, to define God, and to uh, to say what God can and cannot do, and the doctrine of election says it doesn't work like that. You don't get to decide what is true. You don't get to decide how God has chosen to reveal himself. The Bible reveals God for who he is, and it will make you uncomfortable. And it's the only hope we have. Romans is another great passage, uh... We did Romans back in the day, but I don't have time for it. But that's, a, that's another good reference that uh, it's a way to test whether I've put myself in a position where I'm judging God rather than the other way around. John Piper then quotes C.S. Lewis, who died in 1963. C.S. Lewis wrote what is, uh, an article or a book, I'm not sure which it was, called God in the Dock," And the idea here in uh, what C.S. Lewis wrote is that I should just read what he wrote. Um, C.S. Lewis writes, The ancient man, so not modern man, but the ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. So this is C.S. Lewis's observation. It used to be there was a time when we considered ourselves as we've been accused by God and we're going to defend ourselves. Kind of like what Hannah was talking about in Sunday school. We're on the dock. We've got to come up with a defense before an almighty God. And C.S. Lewis says that's the way it used to work. But then he says, the modern man, the roles are reversed. The modern man is the judge and God is on the dock. He is a quite kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, disease, then the modern man is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is on the dock. Just like Stephen. He was brought before the Sanhedrin and he's supposed to give a defense for the charges against him. And Stephen goes on the offense. Stephen becomes the prosecutor against the Sanhedrin, which was not ordinary. But that was God inspired. But then we think, or what's easy for us to fall into, is that somehow instead of us defending ourselves before Almighty God and my defense, my only defense is Christ. That's the only defense that's going to prevail. But the modern man thinks that we don't have to defend ourselves against anything. God's the one on trial. God's got to answer for all the injustices in the world. God's got to answer for the sickness and the disease and the the death. And we're wrong. Doesn't mean I understand it all. I just know God's not on the dock. God's ruling from heaven, as he has always ruled from heaven. And he will be glorified in all that he does. And my only hope of salvation is what God has chosen to do in Christ by his spirit. And with that, I'm convinced. First Corinthians says, for consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It's because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, Boasts in the Lord. I am convinced at the end of the day, the only reason why I can call myself adopted in the family of God is because of what God did, not what I did. I know it required a, a, a faith response to the gospel. It required that. But the only reason why I can call myself in the kingdom of God at the end of the day is because of what God did, not what I did. I did not provide the last piece to finish what God purposed to do. God purposed to do it and that purpose included my response of faith. I could say the same thing from Titus but I won't read that passage. It's he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He saved me. And with that what are your comments and questions? There are times in Scripture where you do do see how it was resolved in such a way that God was glorified. And you see how it fits into the picture? That's not always the case. But the ultimate example, Joseph's good, one of the better ones in the Old Testament, but the ultimate example is Christ. How is it good that Christ, the sinless one, dies on a cross? And if God can take the most atrocious, horrific crime that human history has ever known and bring glory to Himself, you know what? He can do it in every other, every other case as well. If God can't do it in Christ, then all bets are off everywhere else. But if He did do it in Christ, then my, my trust, my confidence, my hope has to be that He's going he's to work, accomplish His purposes in a way that brings glory to Himself. Anyone else? Darren? That's a very famous quote too by somebody like I don't know if it was uh, G.K. Chesterton or something like that like if you can understand or Augustine maybe as well they wrote similar quotes if I can understand God what kind of a God is he now it doesn't mean I it doesn't mean that I'm completely in the dark at all because God has revealed a wealth of information if I were to live Methuselah's life I would come away from this book saying there's more I don't know than I do I'm confident that is true so I'm not left completely in the dark, but I will never fully comprehend the mind or the purposes or the motivations of God. But what he's revealed, Deuteronomy 29, 29, he's revealed to us and our children that we would walk in obedience to him, that we would obey him. It's 10 till, it's Mother's Day. If you're planning on going to a restaurant, you're probably already disappointed that I've kept you this long. So let's... Uh, Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer. Next week, we'll, we'll start off. I'm planning the worship service. I can promise you, we will sing in our hymnal to the praise of His glorious grace right out of Ephesians.